And I was just telling one of my postdocs today that like success in science is definitely not uh, a sprint, right? And, and analogous to marathon running and training, it's all about pace and it's all about, you know, the big wins, but celebrating also the small wins, right? When you're running past mile, you know, mile 21, you're like, oh, good, I, I survived to mile 21. And I'm sure if I, I keep the pace, you know, the next few miles, I'm, I'll be fine, right? And and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. And that was Dr. Jean Yao, a researcher at the University of California, San Diego. You will hear more from him and about him shortly. Just briefly about this podcast. For my stories, I speak with scientists around the world, and these podcasts are a way to share more of what I find out. Some scientists are also scientist athletes. Neuroscientist Kaspar Podgorski, he's at the Allen Institute for Neural Dynamics in Seattle, sent me some photos from his commute. It's sunrise or maybe sunset, and he's on the water in his kayak. That's how he commutes to and from work. His main sport is climbing. He loves being out in the mountains, and he told me it makes him happy, and some of his best ideas come to him in the mountains. I've been talking with some other scientists who are athletes as well as scientists. And Dr. Jean Yao is one of them. I did a story in Nature Methods recently. A link to the story is in the show notes. The story includes Kaspar Podgorski and Jean Yao, as well as computer scientist and Olympic athlete Dr. Elizabeth Bradley. You will hear from her and about her in another podcast. Back to Jean Yao. So being an athlete scientist is beyond being someone who works out regularly. Athlete scientists are serious about their sport and train hard. So this is part one in a series that will come together now and then about athlete scientists. I will share some things they said about their sport and what it means to them and also how it affects their science. They'll talk a bit about their science itself, too. Here, let me introduce you to University of California, San Diego researcher Jean Yao. He has completed two Ironman competitions, a number of half Ironman competitions, and both full and half marathons. Ironman, that's 2.4 miles of open water swimming, 112 miles on the bike, and a 26.2 mile run. That all happens consecutively. Training is a time for exertion, of course, but it's also a time when Jin Yao can think about science. It's helpful because in these long, long runs and long bike rides, you know, you get the time to sort of zone out a little bit, right? And it helps you focus on, on you know, answering some questions. Uh, it's helpful, I think, especially the swims. The swims are great, right? You don't really want to be too distracted riding a bike. <laughs> you might get a run off the road, but but the swims and runs are good because you can sort of keep swimming and while digesting a problem and you just go through the motions. And I think the added background noise um, of, of doing the, these exercises sort of help create a prioritization, you know, of what problems are worth thinking about, right? Because then you stop, stop worrying about the smaller things. And so that's helpful, I think. Training for the Iron Man and Iron Woman is very intense to my knowledge. And this is only from talking to people who do this. I certainly do not. You have to push your body to extremes, which is not for everyone. And I don't want to be ableist here. Some people can't practice sports like that or even at all. For those who can and choose to train hard, like Jin Yao, there are parallels to science. Being a working scientist takes persistence, endurance, and an ability to handle a certain amount of pain. I wondered what kinds of parallels Jin Yao draws between the skills acquired and used for training for athletic events like the Ironman and the skills needed in science. Here's Jin Yao. 
I think I think the the values are or the habits right that are um, useful for a long kind of race endurance races or even I mean I do a lot of other things these days too I do a lot of rock climbing and all that and so the, all these different uh, activities which are you know long drawn out but require constant check ins you know frequent check ins of your yourself and your body and your mind. It's it's very useful and um, portable to science, right? Because I think success in science isn't really a sprint. Uh, I mean, most papers are not, you know, because we sprinted hard for like a year, right? Most things or most discoveries take five, ten years, and and it's all built from many small achievements, right? That you uh, accumulate and you string together, and they help one another, you know, to to strengthen, you know, and all that. So. So those are very similar attributes from when you're training for races or doing the race, these long races, or or even these days we do a lot of rock climbing with my wife, right? And 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 so we think a lot about, you know, as you as you go from one position on the wall to another position, you plan for for what would provide you a, a point of rest and then a point of uh uh and the next point when you're all energized, you're you know how you approach the next point and a lot of strategy involved, right? And so it's a very similar thing. I think I was just telling one of my postdocs today that like success in science is definitely not uh, a sprint, right? And, and analogous to marathon running and training, it's all about pace and it's all about, you know, the big wins rather than, um, but celebrating also the small wins, right? When you're running past mile, you know, mile 21, you're like, oh, good. I, I survived to mile 21. And I'm sure if I, I keep the pace, you know, the next few miles, I'm, I'll be fine, right? And so just you hydrate every at every step, every mile after that, I hydrate. And and so you still, you know, refuel, right? Uh, I think that's important. So I think a lot of the, the, the habits and um, principles um, are transferable. When you practice a sport with someone, for example, Jean Yao and his wife go rock climbing together, that is an effort that they share with one another. When doing a sport with someone else, you do something intense together. You can enjoy it together. It can be a spouse or a family member or a friend or another person from the lab, of course. It's something you enjoy doing with others. But in general, competition in the Ironman or taking part in races such as biking or swimming, it's you and your body racing against the elements, leveraging your own strength and endurance, playing mind games when you feel too tired to keep on going, but you do want to complete a race. In that sense, it's not really a team experience. It's funny because even, you know, same for these things, right? Like marathons, Ironmans and, and racing. Um, it's not thought to be a team sport because you do it alone or even with rock climbing, you do it with a buddy, right? at best, but actually uh, a lot of the training is done best as in groups of people highly motivated and they can help one another, right? So uh, learn about injuries, all that. So so the lab setting is similar, right? We have a group setting. Everyone is working together closely to help one another, but ultimately the people that that lead the projects and make the discoveries are almost individuals or, you know, pairs or small small groups rather than the entire lab as a whole, right? But then everyone gets credit and everyone's part of the journey. Everyone's part of the journey in a marathon and in a lab. It's a longer, drawn-out exercise. To run a marathon and science, too, tends to be a longer, drawn-out matter. Discoveries take a moment. Sports and, sports and science. It's funny, in San Diego, at the uh, triathlon teams here or the rock climbing gym, there are a lot of scientists. 
And I think it's uh it it's a, you know it makes a lot of sense, right? I think you know the folks that that um what attracts you know people to these achievements are the same sort of people that are attracted to to you know working working um at solving a specific problem and then are happy when they finally solve it, right? Not uh not necessarily for the immediate gratification in like some other sports, right? Like this is these kind of things are a longer drawn out exercise, I think. So that was the sports side of Gene Yao. And now here's a bit more about his science, which is experimental and computational. When he's not an athlete, he works on RNAs and RNA binding proteins in the brain and in stem cells. I interviewed him when I was working on a story about non-coding RNA, the RNAs that do not encode a protein but fulfill other functions. Or maybe they don't have any function at all, which is why some people have called non-coding RNA junk. But we're not going to get into that name-calling here. But there are distinct groups of scientists who say, I am part of the non-coding RNA science crowd, and others who are about the coding RNA. Actually, though, the divide is not so clear in some ways because some non-coding RNAs have parts that are coding. Here's Jin Yao. Well, I, I think I myself more as an, an RNA person uh, and less so with coding or non-coding, right? Because I think at the end in the cell, you know, there are a couple of ways of defining what's interesting about RNA, right? So you can think about, you know, an RNA person is one that's interested in how you know, RNA is synthesized and manipulated and uh, and then finally, you know, destroyed, right? So, and then, or you can think about like the functions that these RNAs do, right? And I, so I think when people think about the functions that RNAs do is when the coding and non-coding crowd or, or groups uh, divide, right? Because the, the coding crowd will go, okay, these RNAs may, are made into protein and then we're interested in like what the proteins do. And then the the there's a group that probably you know that that focus on the ones that don't become protein. And in fact, many of the non-coding ones still have parts that are translated into shorter open reading frames and peptides. So so one would argue maybe the 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 you know that these are also coding. But then let's say there are some which are completely non-coding. What are the functions of these uh, RNA? They're independent of their protein function, right? And so that's that's the other piece. So I just kind of belong to the you know what controls the generation, synthesis, you know, processing and decay, uh, and those are similar principles. I think similar rules for both coding and non-coding. So in his view, plenty of the science applies to coding and non-coding RNAs. My comments are probably general to RNA as a field, both coding and non-coding, is that tracking the birth and the decay and destruction of these RNAs is still a, a difficult uh, to achieve at scale and at resolution, but also live, right? And so that's sort of the, the big take home is that we can do a lot, like we can do many measurements at scale, but there are fixed, fixed tissues and not, you know, longitudinal images. We can do one or two RNAs at a time live but that's not at scale. And we can do many things at the resolution of, of uh, uh, you know, what the cell is by identity because you can you know, track some of them, but not at very good subcellular resolution and definitely not across complicated tissues, right? So I always think about scale resolution uh, and whether or not it's, it's static or dynamic images. With RNAs, 
probes are needed, also ways to track the many RNAs and at scale. The resolution issues seem to be improving, this ability to be able to see individual RNAs. But that's not the only reason why some aspects are still being missed. One challenge with RNAs is that one gene can make many different RNAs, many isoforms. And in situ, hybridization approaches cannot distinguish between isoforms. I think that's getting better uh, at detecting the the identity of what that gene could be that's expressed, uh, coding or non-coding. But the problem is that, that as we know, it is not... We, you know, we need to step away from thinking that there are whatever, 25,000 genes or something, right? You know, there are probably hundreds and thousands of alternative isoforms. When I think about RNA, I think really isoforms. And right now, they're, you know, the, the in-situ hybridization technologies cannot distinguish isoforms. So I would say we're missing, you know, 80% of the picture because we are not looking at, at you know, uh, holotranscripts, subcellular, you know, at scale, and then we're missing another half of that by not being able to do th these things and lifestyle measurements dynamically, right? Because I think the movements are best tracked at the end by imaging, not by many, many static snapshots. And, and we can do that well for a couple of things at a time, but not, you know, all transcripts at a time, right? RNAs can be at many spots in a cell. And so one needs better ways to find them and to watch them RNAs are usually in the cytoplasm, but they can also be in the nucleus. Jin Yao studies RNAs in a special cell type in which RNAs travel far. Even in the cytoplasm, which is what I think where we've been looking at a lot at RNA granules for stress, right? I think that's where a lot of cellular compartments are. And then also, you know, the most interesting cell type studies that in my bias perspective where we study are like neurons where they're post-mitotic and you have to bring RNAs one meter away, right? from where they begin. And so every, you know, like, like Wait, the problem one meter, oh, the, all along the, the axon. Or, yeah, uh, like from here to like the tip of your toes, right? That's like a meter and RNAs have to travel there from the, the central nervous system all the way to the synapse, right? Uh, where it hits the muscle junctions and so on. So, so people forget that like the most interesting RNA, RNA localization problems are actually in this long range cell type. Given these types of puzzles, I wondered if this is an area that will support scientists, his trainees, for example. I always like to ask about job areas and areas of growth. And in some of my conversations with scientists on RNA, certainly non-coding RNAs, I did hear that people were told, nope, this is not a good career choice. Well, I, I mean, I think it's a, an amazing choice because actually, you know, if you look at all genes in the genome, they're all transcribed as multiple different isoforms, depending on cell type and and developmental stage and disease, you know, uh, thing. So, so first of all, like nothing is really really well understood about these different isoforms, what they do, and then many of these RNAs, you know, go on to become proteins, but they're modified and plotted all along the path. And this, you know, if you think about therapeutics today. You know, I would argue it's it's all about RNA therapeutics, right? RNA as a drug, RNA as a drug substrate, um, and if you can actually think about RNA as a drug or a drug substrate, why do you ever worry about proteins or small molecule inhibitors to kinases? Or what do you worry about any of that, right? Like, you know, you have both sequence specificity uh, with RNA as a target, as well as the ability to hit the 
many different isoforms, you know, before they're made, right? And so I think of RNA as the, I don't know, I'm completely biased here, right? But I think that there's so much opportunity in this space because, you know, if you think about RNA, it's a very interesting molecule, right? It's not only a good substrate, but also a good, a good uh, a reagent, right? So you can use RNA itself as a drug, like the vaccines. You can use RNA as a drug because you can do in vivo CAR T. You can, you know, in cancer, for example, and 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 at the same time, you can still target it with antisensitive nucleotides, srRNAs. These are small molecules, right? With uh, the 3D structures of RNAs are just at its infancy. Whereas proteins have been done a lot of it already, but RNA structure is not not clearly defined. So I think that there's a you know much more room to grow with for, for new ideas here in this area than any actually any other area. Jin Yao has been involved and is involved with spin-outs, biotech, and pharma companies such as Takeda and Genentech, and is a co-founder of a number of companies, including Locana, Eclipse, BioInnovations, Enzerna, and Protean. Many companies have focused on genomics and on DNA and not so much on RNA. But for treatment of disease in Jin Yao's assessment, RNA has a big role to play. I don't know. I always felt that the that the, the genetic and genomic basis of diseases is very clearly, you know, very clearly exciting. But to know what the function of these variants are, uh, you kind of have to look at the downstream expression of the RNA, if there is, or generation of protein, if there is, right? And otherwise, you know, it's like you have a parts list, but not an understanding of how the parts actually work. Neurodevelopmental disorders and psychiatric illness are all difficult to treat and often poorly understood. Also, neurodegenerative disease, too. Perhaps RNAs play a role in these conditions. But RNA drugs can be challenging, such as the one gene therapy Zolgensma for spinal muscular atrophy, which is an inherited, often fatal condition that can kill children before they reach their second birthday. The drug does not cure the condition. There had been some hope that RNAs could be targeted by drugs which help in this condition and address symptoms. Jin Yao sees positives in these drugs, and his perspective reaches beyond that scope of addressing symptoms and in targeting many types of diseases at the RNA level. I would argue, yeah, I mean, it, it would be not just symptoms. I would say they are cures, right? Like the, you know, the first uh, oligo, in the sense, oligonucleotide, drug uh, to a severe neurodegenerative disease, right, is spinal muscular atrophy. And that was a ASO drug from Ionis slash, you know, uh, Biogen, right? And so, you know, that that is a clear, clear win. And then the siRNA drugs after whatever, 15, 20 years from Alnylam and have now like started taking hold and now it's all about making products in that space, right? And as cancer evolves because of nucleotide somatic variation, sort of the nucleotide targeting drugs can also be adapted quickly, fast, right? Whereas small molecules, you can't, right? And then for, for you know, diseases like, well, like the coronavirus, right? You can, you know, you can, in theory, have your vaccines pace your, your mutations in that show up in the coronavirus variants, right? So I don't know of any I don't know of many other modalities in the pharmaceutical world where you can outpace the the, the you know these variants or even cancer mutation all that right so so the sequence level alteration cannot be done at the genetic level 
they can really only be targeted at the RNA level. I mean, to me, it was always kind of obvious. So it wasn't like I, it was an aha moment for me, but I think, I think for the field, there was an aha moment when the, the, the SMA oligonucleotide worked to alter splicing and then the, the sRNAs worked uh, for um, a variety of different diseases. And then now you have small molecule drug targeting RNA that seems to be working also. So it's, you know, and then the RNA vaccines, right, from the pandemic. So I, I can't imagine any other area that is both a platform, a modality, but also, you know, a, a basis for understanding disease, right? That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's guest was Dr. Jean Yao from the University of California, San Diego, talking about being an athlete scientist and about why RNAs matter. The music used in this project is Smoothie Moody by Mac Aid Mia, licensed from Artlist.io. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, the University of California, San Diego didn't pay for this podcast, and nobody paid to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.